0: Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 1. This is the reading of God's word. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten more? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah the multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incest is detestable to me. New moons, sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you, even if you offer many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tender in his work of spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I don't know about you, but I think that passage pretty much preaches itself. You know, it's so incredible to me how dead on the word of God is in describing our present moment. And how these words that were written thousands of years ago could speak to us so powerfully today. You know, I'm sure many of us felt at least a small tinge of discomfort as we heard that passage read. And that's the point. Because discomfort forces self-examination. Discomfort pushes us toward empathy and understanding. And I think all of us, especially those of us here in the West, could use a healthy dose of discomfort right about now. You know, as Americans, we typically see problems and we immediately want to jump to solutions because we don't like feeling helpless. We don't like feeling weak. We're all about forward progress. But I believe 2020 is teaching all of us a valuable lesson on what it means to just sit with our pain and grief for an extended period of time. Because the issues that we're dealing with right now, these issues around systemic racial injustice, these issues around the brutalization and dehumanization of black bodies, these aren't issues that have simple fixes. These are issues that are going to require us to dig in, to practice patience, to be okay with being uncomfortable. And that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks as we launch this new teaching series we're calling Jesus and Justice. And we're actually going to stay right here in Isaiah chapter 1 because I want our church to have to have this passage read to them over and over again. I want us to learn what it means to sit with and wrestle with a text for multiple weeks because I believe it's going to take that kind of endurance in order for us to navigate the complexities of our current crisis. You know, this series was definitely a game-time decision for us, but obviously a no-brainer given the fact that this idea of justice is currently at the forefront of our collective consciousness. Everyone is talking about it. And whether we like it or not, All of us are getting a crash course on justice. Now the problem is, is that we're getting it from a million different sources. Every day we're being bombarded with social media posts, with news articles, with videos that are telling us what to think, how to respond, how to engage. And I think many of us are starting to feel paralyzed. We don't know what to do, we don't know what to think, we don't know what to believe. And the question that I've been getting a lot over the past few weeks is, How are we as Christians supposed to navigate this moment? Are we supposed to take on a particular stance or position? Are we supposed to engage the conversation at all? And the answer to that question is absolutely. Because there are few things closer to the heart of God. There are few things that God talks about more in his word than this idea of justice. This word justice that we see in Isaiah 1 translated mishpat that actually occurs some 200 times in the Old Testament. This means that we can't possibly understand the heart of God unless we understand justice. And so today we're going to start by talking about the what of justice. What is biblical justice? What does biblical justice look like? And how does it differ from what the world is telling us what justice is? Now let me start by saying this. As a church, our allegiance is not to a political party or to a political stance or to a certain set of ideological beliefs. Our allegiance is to Christ alone. Please hear me when I say that. Because I believe that these lines are being blurred a lot these days. Where we are either judging or condemning other people for their views on certain issues or we found ourselves judged and condemned by other people for our views on certain issues. And in our noble quest for justice, I think many of us run the risk of undoing the very gospel we preach. Okay, so I want to make that very clear. I mentioned this in an email I sent to the church a few weeks ago, but I truly believe that if we are living into our mission as a church, if we are faithfully living out the gospel, if we are faithfully preaching the gospel, then we will attract and upset people on all sides of the political spectrum. Because at the end of the day, human beings don't determine our values, God does. Okay, so I want to make that very clear. With that being said, let me be clear about this. That as a church, we unequivocally denounce racism in all its many forms. Because we don't actually believe racism is a political issue. We believe racism is a spiritual issue. We believe it is a cancer. We believe it is pure, unadulterated evil that needs to be eradicated. Now many of us may be thinking, when are we going to move on from this? When are we as a church going to get back to talking about the important things? When are we going to get back to talking about the gospel? Well, What I hope to communicate through this series is that fighting oppression, and seeking justice actually is at the very heart of the gospel. And if you look around at the injustice that's all around us and your heart does not break, if you find yourself apathetic or even annoyed whenever someone brings up the issues of race or racism or racial justice, I would encourage you to examine your own heart and ask yourself if you actually believe the gospel you have heard all these years. Because what the Bible tells us is that you don't get it. You don't get the heart of God unless you understand his heart for the oppressed. And as we turn to our passage today, that's what we see. God is actually speaking to a group of people who think they get it. He's not speaking to a group of immoral, irreligious people. He's speaking to a group of hyper-religious people who think they're doing all the right things. They're praying, they're gathering on Sundays, They're bringing extravagant sacrifices. And yet God looks at them and he says, you are absolutely blind to the things that are really on my heart. Listen to what he says in verses 13 to 17. And I love the message translation of this text. It says this, Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. This should cut all of us deep. Because what God is saying here is all your right doctrine all your prayer gatherings, all your religious acts don't matter to me if you are not taking up the cause of the fatherless, if you are not pleading the case of the widow. And he's seething in verse 21. God says this, see how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. We see this again in Isaiah 58 when God's people, they're praying and they're fasting and they're worshiping and doing what they think are all the important things and they're wondering why God isn't answering them. And this is how God responds. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? In other words, you may say you have a good relationship with me. You may say you understand the gospel. But if you are not pouring yourself out to loose the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free, to feed the hungry, and to serve the poor, then you really don't know my heart. And we don't just see this in the Old Testament. We see this theme throughout the New Testament as well. In Mark 12, there's a story of Jesus calling out the religious leaders because of their showy, lengthy prayers while widows' houses are devoured. In James 1.27, it says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Then in James 2.14 we read, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs... What good is it? Time and time again, there's this connection between saving faith and a radical commitment to justice. Now, keep in mind, this is not saying that we are saved on the basis of our commitment to justice. We don't serve others in order to get saved. No, the Bible is very clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But I think what these passages are getting at is that a radical commitment to justice And a deep care and concern for the oppressed are the inevitable fruits that come with being saved. Put another way, a person who truly understands that he or she is a sinner saved by grace cannot possibly be apathetic or dismissive when it comes to issues of justice. Now let's get a little bit more specific here. What does biblical justice actually look like? Now I think there's a common misconception that the Bible is either one, too narrow in its view of justice, Or two, straight up unjust. And I think as Christians, all of us kind of have to own up to the fact that our history is tainted with a lot of people weaponizing the Bible and using it to perpetuate some of the most horrific injustices imaginable. But when you actually read what the Word of God says, what you find is that God's definition of justice actually goes far beyond all modern theories of justice. Because most contemporary views of justice basically boil down to one of three things. Justice as retribution, justice as charity, or justice as individual responsibility. Okay, But what we're going to see in Isaiah 1 is that God's definition of justice goes beyond all of these things. And we're going to see God define justice in three ways. Number one, God defines justice as restoration, not retribution. Number two, God defines justice as calling, not charity. And number three, God defines justice as communal responsibility, not individual responsibility. Okay? Number one, justice as restoration, not retribution. Number two, justice as calling, not charity. And number three, justice as communal, not individual. Okay? So let me start with number one, justice as restoration, not retribution. What do I mean by that? Contemporary understandings of justice tend to be retributive in nature, meaning they tend to focus on punishment for one's actions. Michael Foucault talks about this in his book, The Punitive Society, in which he describes a shift that happened in the West in the 18th century where we started to understand justice through the lens of paying someone back for something bad they'd done, rather than seeking the welfare and restoration of the individuals and communities involved. And we see this shift in our modern justice system. I mean, think about what happens and think about the things that we say every time we see someone commit a crime. We, see, we say they need to be brought to justice. They need to pay for what they've done. They need to be penalized for their wrongdoing. Now, this is not to say that retribution is not a part of God's justice. I mean, we saw this in Genesis 4. When God confronts Cain for murdering his brother, what does God say? He says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Meaning, your brother's blood cries out to me for justice. Blood must be met with blood. But while retribution is a part of God's justice, it is never the primary aim of God's justice. When you read the Old and New Testaments over and over again, what you find is that justice is not about punishment, but about the restoration of persons to relationship, us to one another, and us to God. The end goal is never punishment, it's always renewal. And this is what we see in verse 18. Right after God chooses people out, listen to what he says Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, You will be devoured by the sword. You see, the punishment isn't the point. What God desires is a cleansing of the heart and the mind and the restoration of a right relationship with Him. This means that when God calls on His people to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless, to plead the case of the widow, it's not just about making sure the people who need to go to jail go to jail. Yes, this may be where it starts, but this can't be where it ends. What God is talking about is the full restoration of all of creation. He's talking about confronting the systems and policies that have held poor and marginalized communities down for generations. He's talking about creating safe spaces for people to listen and to learn. He's talking about seeking reconciliation of broken relationships. He's talking about restoration, not just retribution. Number two, God defines justice as calling not charity. Now, a lot of people equate doing justice to doing charity work. But this distinction is very important and not that doing charity work is bad. But I think because we've lumped them together, we fall into some dangerous traps. Okay, let me talk about two things related to charity. Number one, when we think about charity, we think about it as something that's optional. It's something that we do when we have the time and resources. It's voluntarily giving help to those in need. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. But because we've lumped charity and justice together, we often think justice too is optional. That it's reserved for only the elite Christians. That it's reserved only for those people who have an extra heart for outreach. And yet we would never look at something like prayer or attending Sunday worship as optional we would see them as vital, essential parts of our calling as followers of Jesus. And this is what God is trying to convey when he says in verse 15, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. He's saying when you turn a blind eye to the needs of the oppressed, you're not just being stingy with your time and resources, you're being unjust. The second thing I want to mention about charity is that charity often offers short-term solutions to long-term problems. Again, please hear me when I say this. I have nothing against charity. In fact, some of the greatest organizations I can think of are charities that are doing incredible work to to provide basic needs to those who need it the most. But biblical justice never ends with just charity, never ends in the short-term. Biblical justice is always about the long game When God says, take up the cause of the fatherless, the wording there is so very intentional. This is more than donating used goods or giving someone on the street your spare change. Again, even though there's nothing wrong with that, but biblical justice goes beyond this to the point that their cause becomes our cause. Their pain becomes our pain. Their fight becomes our fight. Biblical justice is not optional. It's required. It is not charity, it is our calling as followers of Jesus. And lastly, God defines justice as communal responsibility, not just individual responsibility. What do I mean by this? Often when you hear people talk about justice, they will talk about it in terms of an individual taking responsibility for his or her own personal actions and choices. You know, I've heard a lot of people talk about what happened to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, and I've heard them talk about it like this. You know what? What happened to them was horrible, and the people who need to be held accountable should be held accountable, and once they do, justice is served. We don't need to go beyond that. We don't need to connect it to broader societal issues. We don't need to talk about systemic racism. We don't need to talk about broader policies and systems and structures. No, as long as the people who are responsible for this are held accountable, justice is served. But you see, biblical justice never works like that. We never see that in the Bible. In the Bible, everyone is accountable. Everyone is responsible for the well-being of those in their community. When one person suffers injustice, everyone suffers that injustice. When one person is at fault, everyone is at fault, whether or not they intentionally perpetuated that injustice or not. You know, if any one of my kids, I only have two, but if any one of them went to school and hit another kid, it doesn't matter that I wasn't there. It doesn't matter that I didn't intend for them to do that. You know who's responsible? I'm responsible because I take ownership of my children because we belong to each other. And whatever they do is a reflection of me, whether I like it or not, whether I intended it or not. But you see, that's the greatest problem in our society because we don't look at our brothers and sisters like that. We don't see ourselves as belonging to one another. We don't see ourselves as needing one another. We don't see ourselves as part of the same family. We see ourselves as individuals and this is tearing apart our society and this is why we are, we are where we are today. You know, in Daniel 9, Daniel cries out to God and he repents not only for his own sins but for the sins of his ancestors. Why would he repent for something he didn't do? That doesn't make sense. And those of us who live in America, who live in this hyper individualistic culture probably really don't get that. Because we truly believe that we are who we are today because of our own individual choices. That what we believe about ourselves, that how we treat other people, that the way we view the world is all the product of our own doing. But don't you see that even that mindset is the result of being raised in this culture? Because throughout most of human history, People did not understand their lives that way. They understood themselves as being part of a community formed by shared communal values. So when one person hurt, everyone hurt. When one person rejoiced, everyone rejoiced. When one person failed, everyone failed. And we see this in Isaiah one. Notice, God never calls out an individual in that entire passage. He never calls out individuals. In verse four, he says, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. He calls out the entire nation. It's more than an individual issue for God. It's a communal one. Well, what does this mean for us in our current moment? And I'll tell you what it means for me. It means that I am responsible for the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. It means that I am responsible for the enormous social gaps that exist in our society that keep poor, marginalized communities down. It means that I am responsible for the very injustices I protest against. And you could say that's not fair, but you could also ask our black and brown brothers what is fair and what is not fair. You see, when it comes to biblical justice, there's no such thing as something that is their problem and not our problem. No, their problem is our problem. All of us are responsible. So biblical justice is restoration, not retribution. Biblical justice is calling, not charity. And biblical justice is communal, not individual. And the way God shows us what biblical justice looks like is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, a lot of people believe that Jesus' work on the cross was merely retributive. That he came to this world simply to pay for our sins. And yes, that is absolutely true. He had to take the punishment for our our sins. But we would completely miss the beauty of the gospel if we thought that Jesus' work was just a man taking punishment. No. What Jesus did on the cross was to bring us into a right relationship with God, to restore a relationship that was broken. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ's work was not simply retributive, it was restorative. We also know Jesus' life and ministry was so much more than just charity. The Bible says that the very reason he came was to serve, not to be served. He spoke truth to power. He confronted all the socio-political structures of his day. He took up the cause of the poor and he pleaded the case of the widow and the fatherless. He was so committed to that cause that he became poor himself. He took on flesh and bones. He was born in a manger. He worked a blue-collar job. He literally lived his life as a homeless nomad. He made the problems of the oppressed his own problems. This is the heart of Jesus. And perhaps most importantly on the cross, Jesus illustrates for us justice that is communal, not just individual. Because think about this, Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He never sinned. He wouldn't have had to die. No, He died for the sins of all of humanity. He he died for your sins and he died for my sins. He took responsibility for something he didn't do. So anytime we want to say, but those aren't my sins. I never did that. Why should I pay for that? Why should I repent for that? Why should I lament over that? I want us to remember the cross. Because Jesus took responsibility for something he never did. And he took our shame and our guilt upon his own shoulders. And not only that, when we put our faith in him, the Bible tells us his perfect life, his good deeds, all of his acts of justice are credited to us as if we'd done them. You see, the entire basis of our salvation doesn't lie in our own individual choices or actions. If it did, we'd be dead. The entire basis of our salvation lies outside of ourselves The Bible says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, where can this kind of justice be found in a world that runs rampant with injustice? In a world that doesn't look so different from the picture we see in Isaiah 1. Desolate, cities burned with fire, a nation full of systems and structures that do not defend the oppressed, that do not take up the cause of the fatherless, that do not plead the case of the widow. What can we do? And I want to close by speaking to two groups of people who may be tuning in today. First I want to speak to those of us who find ourselves in positions of privilege or power. And second I want to speak to those of us who identify with the oppressed and the marginalized. First. For those of us who find ourselves in positions of privilege, who've never experienced and will probably never experience the gross injustices that have plagued the black community for generations, who are tempted now to disengage because these issues don't seem to impact our daily lives, we cannot look away. We can't do it. Because the gospel is a story of a God who gave up his privilege, who gave up his power, who gave up his rights, and willingly subjected himself to unimaginable injustices so that you and I could be brought back into a right relationship with him. And if we truly believe this, then our only fitting response is that we give up our privilege, our power, our comfort, our rights, for the sake of the oppressed around us. Now for those of us who have experienced or are still experiencing the painful reality of the systemic injustices that continue to persist in our country. May the Gospel lift your head this morning. May the story of a God who became poor, who became vulnerable, who was murdered by the very people he came to save, may that story be a comfort to you this morning. May that story remind you that no matter how bleak your circumstances, you are not alone. And God always finds himself in the places of greatest pain. This is who our God is. So friends, this is our hope today. We hope in the gospel that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all of us can look forward to a day when we can see peace on earth, when true justice will be revealed, when there will be no more pain or sorrow or death anymore. Let's pray. God, it's humbling to read these words from Isaiah 1. As a church, we repent for the ways that we've been silent and apathetic in the face of injustice, for the ways that we've turned a blind eye to the needs of those right in our midst. God, remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh that weep with those who weep and speak for those without a voice. Give us courage and humility in this season and teach us how to love the way you loved us. Thank you that you are a God who is near to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.